Welcome. You're listening to the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. We're a team of five badass women who will be your sommeliers to the marketing world. We work and whiteboard together at our nine to five every day in B2B marketing. We're a small, scrappy team that's picked up a few secret hacks along the way, and we want to share our crazy ideas with you. Let's call it an anything but ordinary guide to marketing and design. From Chardonnay to Rosé, we've got your marketing tips and design tips. Now that's worth raising a glass to. So grab your favorite vino and join us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. Today, we are going to be diving into how to build an email marketing strategy or how to revamp one if you if your current approach isn't currently working for you. So we know that email marketing has a lot of different facets and it might be something that can be a little bit overwhelming in terms of figuring out where you need to start or focus your energy. So just like everything else we talk about uh, talk about on here, I feel like email marketing for us has been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. It seems to be a trend, but we have learned a lot. So we want to make sure that we can help you make your email marketing strategy and jump into it as smooth as possible. I think we want it to feel like a little drive through the countryside with stops at wineries, of course, versus feeling like a little bumpy, I don't know, ride through the desert like ours has been. So in this episode, we'll provide you with some specific steps to reinvigorate your email marketing and how to get started if you're new to the game. So without further ado, before we really dive into the stuff that you're probably here for, I mean, maybe you're here for the wine, but want to share what everybody is drinking today. So Paige, do you want to start us off with what you're drinking? Yes, I'm drinking a Sauvignon Blanc, one of my favorites. It is, what's it called? Mani- I, can you guys pronounce this? Oh, it's M-A-N-I-N-A. Manina? Manina? It looks like like pina or like like pina colada, like a pinata. It's like well, it's like like Spanish word for manana. Yeah, manina. Manana is tomorrow. (laughs) I'm really hoping whoever's listening is enjoying this. That has an I, not an A. It's not manana. So anyways, it is a Sauvignon Blanc from Chile, and it is like $8. It's super cheap, but it's a really great find. My fun thing I was going to share today was I did some wine tasting up in Traverse City recently, and we did a dinner and wine pairing at the Chateau Chantal during sunset. Highly recommend if you guys haven't done from the team. But a little background on the winery, which I thought was kind of hilarious, is a priest and a nun fell in love, left the church to have a baby, and then now they start and ran a winery. So they kind of took a little detour or a switchback, I guess is what I would call it, kind of had a different turn in life. So I thought that was kind of hilarious. Definitely not what I would have expected. Not my path in life, but I highly, uh, highly encourage whatever they did. So I I endorse, I approve. And I was super jealous. I'm like, this is my goal in life is to own a winery or like a wine bar one day. So I was like, okay, if a priest and nun can do it, like, (laughs) what else are you guys drinking? Today, I am drinking a wine spritzer from Trader Joe's. It's called Simpler Wines. They come in a can and I have the peach flavor. It's really good so far. Um, I would definitely buy it again. It's not like too sweet like you know how sometimes they can be like super sugary and like taste more kind of like candy i would recommend this one it's good and then i also owe everyone an update about that super expensive wine that i mentioned mike and i were gonna have for our anniversary i mentioned it on the last episode episode nine so we popped open the good bottle it's called or it's from like the jarvis vineyard in napa valley and it's not just a Cabernet, it's a Cabernet Franc. Don't know what that is. It was really good. I We didn't do a side-by-side pairing, so I have to be like open about that. I could definitely tell it was a good wine, though. I don't know about $135 good wine, but it was definitely good. So, yeah, that's about it. Just wanted to make sure I provided an update on that. I really see I recently bought a Cab Franc for the first time and I'm obsessed with it too. I've never ventured that route, but I recommend if you guys have it. James just texted it and he said that francs are known to be jammy. 
we bought a wine book so that we could learn wine terminology. So jammy is your word of the day. <laughs> what book did you buy, Sarah? Was it the wine foley that I showed you? I think it was a little more basic one than that because <laughs> we had to get our like groove down, our basics down, and then we are going to jump into that one. It looks really cool. I'm blanking on what it is. If I remember, I'll tell you. Okay. Wine tasting uh, for dummies. <laughs> like something like that. I was really hoping you were going to say that you could not tell any difference. So now that we don't feel like we need to go out and get a $130 bottle of wine to be like, oh, this is what the, the good people drink. We, we drink the $8. Help me a four. <laughs> the good people. Did you say the good people or yeah, like no, the rich? You said the good people. I just was thinking like the richy people, but that um, I just went automatically to help me. I'm poor. The people who spit it back in the bucket. Can we? Which do I did see at a winery, and I sent you guys a picture, and it was available at my wine pairing. So, Shame. a little bougie. Can we do a special edition with Mark where we open up his bougie bottles of wine and see if we can tell the difference? Like, I want, like, a side-by-side -side comparison. I feel, like, I feel like he owes that to us somehow. I have been storing those for, like, six months, so I probably deserve at least two bottles at this point. Right? I was going to say, can we just open up the whole box and we each have our own bottle and we all sample them? <laughs> I should just email him and say, sorry, they're uncorked. It is what it is. Yeah, no, we should just try to make a deal with him because really, who knows when we're going to see him again. I hope we get to see him soon. I miss Mark, but really, let's be real. We should definitely bring him on. I wonder if he'd be on board for that. I don't know. Something tells me maybe not, but I would appreciate it. I think maybe he wouldn't be super stoked about it. I agree with you, Paige. I feel like he's an awesome host, but I don't think he'd want to share his wine with us. Good thing it's just have a storage. <laughs> yeah, it's just storage. He'll let us store it. We can't drink it. We're not that close of friends. At least I'm not as close as you guys are. Wait, it can be like in the office when they get that box from Saber and they open it up and they start taking things. So we just take a couple bottles out and then retape it and go, oh my gosh, it got delivered with only this many bottles? Or just put the empty bottle in there and be like, oh my god, it's it's gone. I don't know what happened. You just back up with water like you did when you were in high school and drinking your parents' booze. It's just a really clean Chardonnay. Or we just replace it with like cheap wines from the grocery store and see how long it takes for him to like, maybe he'd never even realize. That Unless he funny. listens to our podcast, he'll never know. <laughs> it's the true test. Well, today I am drinking, this is Sarah, I'm drinking, it's called Four Graces. It's from Williamette Vineyard, or Williamette Va Valley, sorry, and it's a 2018 Pinot Blanc. And my cool fact about this is that it was named for the four daughters of the founders, so the Four Graces, and it says that it's sustainably farmed, which I support, and they say they have well-tended vineyards with the goal of producing rich, elegant, delicious, and complex wines. And I have to say I've enjoyed it. I got it from my Cellar 313 wine club where you get two bottles every month for $35 and we just go pick it up because it's a local delivery. We get a white and a red, which I like the variety, but you could do a red and a red or a white and a white. And they normally give you, they give you a little card that tells about the red and the white wines. Of course, I couldn't find it before this episode, so sorry. Did you say it was owned by women? No, it was named after the four daughters. Okay, I understand. As you say, right. it's actually rare to find women-owned wineries. There's like less than, I don't know how percent, but it's very low. I want to check out 313 Cellars. They're not far from me. And they I follow them on Instagram, and their stuff looks so good. They have like lobster rolls, charcuterie boards. Like It looks amazing. So I'm going to have to go check that out. When I shared the less, like the women less than that of like owning wineries, it reminded me, I listened to a podcast recently on Green Cultivate and I was super confused by this because the person they're interviewing was the youngest women owned winery ever. So she bought a winery at 18 years old and sold it at like 21. And I was like, first of all, who has money at 18 to buy anything? I couldn't even buy a car. Like I just was very confused. 
And then she bought it before she could even legally drink. And then she became, I don't know how much, like a millionaire, I assume, with it in California at 21. So like she's set for life. I, I just found that like to be the weirdest path at such a if a 18 year old can go open a winery or own a winery, why can't we? The I five of us yeah, let's go do open a winery and just that's what we need to do with our lives. Yep, agreed. Kelly, what are you drinking? I was also going to just add on to that create and cultivate. Why didn't they just interview the winery that they had brought to the event where it was a women owned event where they could have not rubbed it in our face that an 18 year old is now retired and set for life after drinking, you know, buying a winery. But I am drinking a red blend from the First Leaf subscription that I also partic participated in. They are not a sponsor, but hint, hint, we are definitely open for any sponsors, especially wine sponsors. So I don't know if I have to say it a couple more times, but first leaf, first leaf. Maybe if they just hear it a couple more times, they might want to sponsor us. <laughs> uh, but it is a nice little wine. It's red, red blend. So um, everything is kind of really smooth and nicely to go down. So last but not least, well, maybe least, I don't know. I am drinking a rosé dark horse today. It actually comes in a can. I'm kind of on this kick of rosés in a can. I learned today when we were getting ready to start recording this that one can is not one serving. <laughs> I made that mistake. <laughs> one can is about a half a bottle. So that explains a lot. But it's actually very good. I do recommend, I feel like I was very put off by wine in a can until recently. I started drinking some of them because I only wanted like smaller servings. I didn't want to open an entire bottle. And they're pretty good. So I definitely recommend it. But little did you know, it was more than one serving. <laughs> Dangerous. They also have the wine that's in like those cardboard like the boxes you know yeah and that's really great for tailgating and like going to concerts when those are actually happening again but you know i don't feel like, like you're not talking about franzia right <laughs> you know, like individual like you know well, I, learned, I learned that those new methods are somewhat better to let uh, keep the wine better longer so like those synthetic corks are better than the actual real corks because it doesn't leak air and then, like, the twist tops seem to be a little better sealed, too. So, like, I don't know. That's it just interesting because normally, yeah, people perceive those as, like, lower quality or, like, not as authentic. And so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I learned a, that about um, wine tasting. We have a wine cork trivia question coming up on the Wine Wednesday trivia. So you guys will have to see how you do on that. Intense. Wink, wink. So much anticipation. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well now that you know what we're all drinking we'll go ahead and dive into some email marketing so since email marketing is such a huge topic we did decide to break it down into a very focused area for today's conversation which is launching an effective email marketing strategy we will do future episodes that cover some more details around some of the campaigns and some of the tactics that we've used uh, previously and in our work so, but we also want to share how we've evolved over time to create a variety of campaigns of different, across different audiences, but that's for a different day. So today we're focusing on that launching aspect of this. So let's go ahead and dive in. So we identified five steps, first of all. Uh, the first step that we identified is really making sure that you understand and know who your target audience is. If you're planning to send emails, who are you going to send them to? We're assuming that if you are planning a launch strategy that you probably already have a list of people to send to. And if you don't know who you're going to send to, then it's probably not time for you to start sending them yet. Don't just send emails just to send emails. This is, we'll, we'll walk you through how to make an effective plan today, but you wanna be conscious of of the emails that you are sending and that you're targeting the right people because if you don't have a plan and you don't really know what you're doing then you're risking having a bunch of unsubscribes of people who could be valuable consumers of yours in the future so i mean i don't appreciate when i get emails that are just like random and not providing any value to me and not things that i want to understand so i am a person who unsubscribes if i'm not interested in something or if i don't feel 
like it's providing value to me. So make sure you think about that before you just go all willy nilly. Charlotte, didn't you say you just subscribed to a course to help you identify your target audience? I thought that might be something we, valuable we can share in case someone needs to identify their audience still. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely did. I subscribed to this. They have an Instagram account that we follow. It's called Boss Babe. And she has a lot of really good content. I believe her name is Natalie Ellis, I think, if I'm recalling that correctly. But she just launched a 10-day challenge. And I signed up for it. It was free. But the first activity was identifying your target market. And it asks, she had a worksheet that asked a lot of really good questions on who your target audience is and helping you really narrow it down. Because the whole concept is the fact that you don't need a huge audience. You just need a very small, engaged audience in order to be successful. So I think keeping that in mind is really important. And we'll definitely share out her account and some of her, some of the programs that she's doing. Because I, I do think there's a lot of value there and would recommend people sign up. So once you've identified your target audience, you need to learn, you need to figure out how you want to segment them. This is a really important part to not have people unsubscribe, like Katie's saying. You need to make sure that you segment them into different groups based on potentially like their role or their industry or something else that might be very particular to your audience. We typically do roles when we do it for our B2B business, but we also have industry as well. So we definitely don't send the same things to the same industry. And then we also have prospects versus clients as well. So those people get very different emails as well as we also segment as far as going into like if you're onboarding, like you're a new client and you're doing training and onboarding, which is different than our marketing emails that we're sending out or our blog posts. And I think the biggest thing tying into that, Sarah, is to focus on one thing. So like you mentioned, we we contact multiple different industries, multiple different roles within each industry, but focusing on one thing to get started and just testing it out and seeing how it goes. Pick the one that maybe you think you know the best, the one that you know your messaging will resonate the most. Pick one, start testing it and seeing how it works, and then prioritize those other categories or segments, right? Say, okay, well, now that we've gotten into this, we started emailing to this specific industry, to this specific role, who is the second most important role that we want to communicate to, and so on and so on. And just start breaking it down because I think the biggest mistake is to think that you can tackle it all at once and you definitely can't. It is an evolution and it is a process. So be patient because once you do figure out what works, you can start translating and, sh and kind of sharing between your industries or your roles and pulling things that work and then just tweaking them and repurposing and saving yourself some time and energy. And you might find that the person who might be the decision maker might not be your target audience. You might need to communicate with someone who can just help you move the needle a little bit. I think what we learned back, I don't know, maybe like five years ago at this point was we wanted to go directly to that decision maker and contact them. And usually that person is an executive. They aren't opening all of their emails every day. They get 500 emails a day and things were just getting buried. So we actually tried contacting someone more at like, I would say a staff level. And they were the people who have that pain point and that were feeling that everyday pain. And they would maybe bring up the idea of using our system to that decision maker, but they were actually reading those emails. So you might start with one target audience and find that you really resonate better with a different one. So you have to be willing to pivot. Well, and it's about finding that white knight. Like who's that person who's gonna be the champion for you within the organization if they aren't the one with the buying power? And they might be the one with the buying power, depending on what you're selling and the price point and things like that. But go for the people that have the pain that are actually feeling the pain. Sometimes that might be the executive, but I think it's target your efforts where the pain exists. I'm not as familiar with the email side of things, but do you guys send similar content to different targets or is it very small increment changes? Is it drastic? Like, could you guys jump into that quick before we go into step two? 
I see Sarah and I both kind of like thinking and I reflecting. I kind of think of a response. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, hmm. I would say that like the messages are similar, but I think there's certain nuances that come into play and it depends on the audience. So for example, we typically communicate with a very specific role in the organization that have a very specific responsibility. But if we wanted to go beyond them and try to go directly to say, for example, the CFO, that message is different to tie into some of the specific pain points that the CFO would have versus this other staff member. So I think it depends on the pain points that they're feeling and how educated you are as an organization or individual on what pain the potential customers are feeling. So it's more of the individual pain versus like an A-B test to see if like this title or CTA is like making it actionable and stuff and actually working. Yeah, I would agree with that. You can get fancier with A-B testing and title, like subject lines and things like that. Once you've figured out who your target audience is and the actual message that resonates with them. I wouldn't do the testing too intently in the beginning until you actually know your audience and you know what speaks to them. We mainly message just to one role. So we do have our other roles segmented out, but currently we don't really send very many emails to them. They would be more like specialized or targeted campaigns at the moment. Yeah. And you guys segment those in Salesforce, right? So like, what's it called? Like a, a CRM. A CRM, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We divide them into like separate campaigns. We're actually doing something right now since we're B2B, and I don't know how many B2B people are out there, but we're actually doing something right now where we're going back through our database of prospects to people that maybe had told us at the time that timing wasn't right, or they didn't have at the time, or certain things like that, that made them not a good prospect at that moment. We're going back and adding them to different campaigns to receive very targeted messages around what maybe their specific pains were that we knew of or based around their specific unique situations. So you can do targeting um, based on that versus just industry or role. You can do it around pain points and that sort of thing. That's actually a good transition. Oh, Charlotte, did you want to finish something? I thought. No, I was just going to say thinking about frequency because you don't want to sign yourself up for too much work. At the end of the day, like building out and launching an email strategy is a lot of time and a lot of work to do it right and do it effectively. So don't get this. And I'm totally guilty of this. And Sarah brings me back down to earth a lot of times. But I get these big ideas in my head. I'm like, what if we do this or this or this? And like narrow it down. Like have that little like voice in the back of your head that says like, you're trying to do too much. Like just do a little bit. Take baby steps. And remember that you are inserting yourself into somebody's email inbox and you want to make sure that you use that privilege wisely and respectfully and you want them to hear from you want them to want to hear from you so make sure that your frequency is appropriate would it be appropriate to bring up the fact that we have like separate unsubscribe things too at the like because you guys were talking about unsubscribe and like not bombarding the wrong people but let's say they go to unsubscribe. I've noticed you guys actually built it out where you have different levels of unsubscribing. So they don't just unsubscribe from our whole email like spectrum. It's like they can unsubscribe from sales things or newsletters or you know whatever it is. So that might be something to consider too. Right, like someone might not be interested in getting our blog digest, but they might still, since we have a technology company, or we work for a technology company, they might want to make sure they're still getting those updates that we're making to the platform. I want to build off of something that Charlotte had mentioned about being respectful of somebody's inbox, where I feel like that's a lost cause nowadays with marketers and things that are always bombarding you about like, once they have your email address, you get so many things. And like, then it gets lost in transition of all these things where you're just like deleting these mass emails. So that's something you want to be mindful of, of making sure whatever you're going to send to them will actually resonate with them and that you're not just going to be another person that they unsubscribe or they just delete right away. Well, I think that actually even touches on the fact that it makes your subject line that much more important. Because often, like I think about how I go through my Gmail, right? And how I delete like, 
mass delete, like maybe my promotions tab. But before I do it, I skim to see who the sender is and I skim the um, subject lines. So that is definitely a great point, Kelly, to think through like what is a compelling subject line that's going to give them pause and say, oh, maybe I don't want to delete that and maybe I should take a quick look at it. Yeah, because I have an entire email just for these types of emails where I'm just like, nah, I don't really want to listen to you, but like I need this promotion in case I want 15% off my next pair of shoes or something, you know, so like I have an entire separate email account for those things. So definitely make sure that you don't end up in that wet realm and have it helpful to the actual user. Going back to Charlotte's point about thinking about frequency and not signing yourself up for too much work. The only reason I shoot down some of her ideas is because I have to go do the work. <laughs> so really lazy girl inside of me that's like, well, Charlotte, it's cool to have that idea, but unless you're going to help me execute it, it's not going to come to fruition yet, right? Like put it in the bank of ideas to work on in the future when you have that extra time, which I think segues us into number two, which is planning the nitty gritty logistics. So the first thing is to figure out who's going to man manage all the fundamentals. And that means like, is it you? So me, is it Charlotte, is it Paige, is it Katie, is it Kelly? Or is it going to be a copywriter that you hire? And one of our favorite, 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 favorite tips. <laughs> favorite, <sorry. laughs> favorite. I'm on my second glass of wine. I don't know what to say. This one must have a higher alcohol content. It's feeling warm in here. Anyways, one of our favorite tips is to use Upwork to hire amazing freelancers. That's how we found our current copywriter. And, you know, I think we have an upcoming drunken marketing episode on hiring and firing freelancers. So we'll give you a little more insight on that. But it can be a good thing. All I have to say is Steve. Ugh. Remember the name Steve and everybody who listens to our next episode or our first episode. No, not our first episode, but a future episode of Drunken Marketing. You will remember. And you've Steve. all had a Steve one time. Or you've all had a Steve. You've all had a Steve, someone you wanted to fire as soon as you hired them. So that is a cute little promo right there. We're going to get drunk and laugh about all those mistakes. Or I feel like Steve is the is the male version of Karen. I wish she had. I wish. <laughs> Your name had been Karen, because then we could be like, Karen. But instead, I'm like, Steve. My favorite thing is, like, it might not have been someone you hired, but you had to work with them. Ugh. If you haven't had a Steve or a Karen yet, you will. Just wait. You will. Or Actually, you'll be Steve or Karen. I was going to say, if you haven't had a Steve or Karen, can we talk to you about how you hire better people than us? <laughs> yeah. Right. Teach us a thing or two. But diving back in... There are a lot of logistics when it comes to email marketing. So you have managing your copy, designing the email, list management. Where are you going to store all of this data? So we touched a little bit on how we use Salesforce to manage our lists, but you might use something different. If like Salesforce is a super big, expensive tool, and you might not be at a company or at the level of your own company where you can afford a tool like that. So you can do list management within an email platform. And we know tons of email platforms, like guys help me out, MailChimp, Pardot. Contact. Yeah. So daddy. There's all sorts of tools yeah. that you can use. And there's like sugar CRM. There's all sorts of like lower cost CRMs out there that help you manage not only the email sending and the workflows for campaigns and stuff like that, but also the database part and housing that that prospect um, contact information. That's the word I was looking for. But Katie, you made a really good point about talking about who will design your emails. So I think there's often a lot of tools that are drag and drop these days, which is amazing, but not all tools are created equal in terms of simplicity. Unfortunately, the tool we currently use, I think they are coming out with a drag and drop. Like I, Sarah is attending a webinar in the next like day or two about it. I see Katie clapping. Like she's like, yes, this is so exciting. I'm excited. Don't break my heart. <laughs> right. But like without that drag and drop, there are some tools that require more sophisticated skill sets such as CSS or HTML um, knowledge to create the templates that you want. So make sure upfront that whatever you are picking, it aligns with your skill level or your freelancers or whoever you're outsourcing it to, whether making sure it aligns with their skill level as well. 
and in terms of design, not all designs are created equal either. There is a big component of what is user friendly, how do you put in your call to actions, how they, and a lot of focus around that. Yeah, I actually use MailChimp with some of my freelance work. I've been doing a lot of stuff in there and it's drag and drop. It's great. And then everything's saved in there. They can kind of handle all the logistics side and I can just design. But when we work in Pardot, I actually don't do the designs portion. We have a Upwork um, freelancer who does that because I don't know CSS and all this backend coding things. So we hired someone who's an expert to be able to fill that void. And then if they have design questions as far as like, oh, does this color scheme look good? What images should I use? Then they come to me and I can kind of fill that. But definitely make sure that you have things in the back end, kind of like have logos linked, have any CTAs linked, make sure all the back end stuff is right. Because I actually went to an email recently and it brought me to the wrong place. And I was like, well, shit, I really wanted to read that article, but they had the wrong link in there. So definitely check those back end logistics in the design stuff that might be hidden. The worst. I was going to say details and emails. You want someone who is detail oriented because I know Charlotte and I have been doing a few emails ourselves recently. And I think you forget everything that goes into it. When you hire a freelancer, you're like, they'll just take care of it. They got it. But I don't know. There's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of double checking, triple checking links and images and making everything, making sure everything is going to the right place and is coming through the way that you want it to be. So I always forget about that. And it takes way longer than you anticipate. Or scheduled at the right time. We've oh. run into that. <laughs> Recently, someone scheduled an email for 10 p.m. And I was like, that sounds really late. Like, <laughs> and luckily I caught it in time and I asked them if that's what they meant to do, which they didn't mean to do. So we got it fixed, but you just never know. <laughs> Two eyes are better than one. If you can have the expert do all the back end stuff and then you triple check before it goes out, best case scenario. Or four eyes. Like you're <laughs> Kelly was pointing up four fingers. <laughs> I mean, obviously two eyes for yourself, but have a backup, yeah, that'd be four eyes. So maybe that's a sign that we should move on to number three, which is outline your email workflow and cadence. So this is meant to get you thinking about what are the first emails you should send? because you don't want your email strategy to be like, aha, I have a great idea. I'm going to send one email. Like that's not going to get you anywhere. You need to have a process or a workflow to say, okay, over the next six months or three months or whatever it is, I want to send these communications and this is what I want to accomplish. So creating a Google doc or an Excel file to outline the primary and secondary message that is included in each email, to help begin to help you start um, building a calendar or a content schedule can be really helpful. Some people use other tools like Asana or, or Trello or other things like that, but whatever it is that you use, I think that primary and secondary message is important and also including the call to action is important. We typically build this out a month at a time, just so, because things will change. If you try to go create your email strategy for a year in advance, I would love to see someone do that, but ours seems to always change and we have last minute requests. So every month we, like at the end of the month, we reevaluate what we were planning to send the following month and make sure everything's still accurate. Sometimes we drop webinars or ones pop up. Sometimes we have new clients launching. So we have things like that, that we have to fit in and we have to finagle our schedule. So we're not over like burdening people with our email communications. And like with my world of training, I need to space things out because if I were to put everything in one email, it just is going to overload people and they're not even going to pay attention anymore and they're going to lose interest. So mine might not be planned out for like just a month. I might space it out for a couple of months of just dropping little tips here and there throughout the on course of like onboarding and whatnot for our clients where I'm still dropping them back to where they need to go for all their resources, but I'm also still keeping them engaged, you know, every couple of weeks and things like that. There's that instance where we were sending a blog digest and we were having three articles and you realize that they were only clicking and viewing maybe one. So we pared it down to one to focus on one sole important thing. So then they weren't bombarded with more content that they could then they could digest. Yeah, well, use data and metrics to help figure that out. Sorry, I kept interrupting. <laughs> but one of the things I was going to say about Kelly's example was the fact that like 
when she's talking about breaking it down over the course of like multiple weeks or months or whatever that time frame is, she's breaking it down in the sense of like of functionality or common common ground, so to speak. So using the example that we have is we work for a finance company and we break it out into here are the things you need to know about the revenue or the money coming into your organization. Here are the things you need to know about the money going out or your spend management. Here are the things you need to know about reporting. And like, so you kind of break it out and consolidate things that make sense to go together. And I think that's important because it makes it makes it easier for people's brains to just process because it's simpler and it's similar. Something that our email marketer actually helped us with that we have adopted and really actually enjoy is the idea of this warm welcome and introduction. So whenever you start kicking off your emails, make sure that you're introducing yourself and your company and even include pictures of hopefully a happy, smiley, friendly face so that it makes it a little bit more personal because people like to do business that with people that they like. And if you seem like a likable individual or approachable individual, that is going to get you a lot further. And I believe that we've even done tests. Sarah, Katie, maybe hold me accountable to this, but I believe we've done tests where we've actually said, if we send an email with somebody's face in it versus having a generic image or a generic signature, we get more interaction from the email that included a photo. Yeah, the in the signature, we'll put our face next to the email signature and we'll make it actually from us, like from Sarah or from Katie, rather than like our marketing at our company, like our marketing team. And it helps build that connection and like make it more personal. Even though it might be a list email, it makes it seem like less of a list email if there's an actual person that they can reach out to. When someone knows that there's a person behind a, a screen, they're going to be like, I don't know, a lot more likely to engage, like be nice. I don't know, maybe feel more open for communication. That was one of the things our email marketer helped us do. When we used to send our blog digest, well, we sent as page reference three articles, but they were just like three articles. She helped us add a personal note at the beginning of it, which I think brought home how the articles tied together. It created a theme. It referenced how, like either how we could help or what valuable resources the blog posts were going to suggest in that time. And also showed them a face and someone they could respond to and get answers from. Another note on making it personal, I was listening to a podcast and he was explaining how he does his emails and how since his team has grown, he has other people actually write his emails, but he was concerned that they were going to lose his personality and his tone of voice. So he actually broke it out and said certain things that he would actually use. And so he has a whole library of things that they can pull so that it fits his type of personality and his tone that he wants to portray to everyone because he's not writing it, which I thought was actually really interesting and maybe something we could take away from it too for future things. I don't know. When your team grows, you can't necessarily do those nitty gritty details. So it might be nice to have that for future. I totally get that page. So like my emails always end with like cheers and they seem like bubbly and upbeat. But when we have to write emails from our president, he has a very different vibe than I do. And he called me out on one of our most recent blog digests where it said like cheers from him, which did not seem appropriate. And also like based on the subject, which was all about COVID and people going through trying times also probably wasn't appropriate. So sometimes you do need that library page and what people would use. He was like, all my best is probably or all the best is probably more appropriate. And I was like, yeah. That makes sense. Thanks for pointing that out. And sometimes you just need to be reminded of that and not everyone's voice is like your voice and you can't make them sound like you because it has to sound authentic from the person that it's coming from. And that's totally okay to have a different voice. Like it's not knocking on anyone. If you're a more formal person, that's totally cool, but make it sound like you. So mm -hmm. as Katie was saying, that you know you want to make sure that it's coming from your voice and if you're unsure maybe what your voice is or what your personality type needs to be you should go back to one of our first couple of episodes and re-listen to it where we talk about our personality tests where we figured out who we were where both Katie and I when we send emails or we communicate with others we are very much 
exclamation points, smiley faces, things like that. So our emails would definitely say cheers, where maybe yours, if you're a different personality type, would not say that. But that will also just kind of move us in to number four here, which is kind of repurposing your content and kind of keeping it simple if you need to, which then you can always change if it needs to be all happy and go get here. But when it's COVID, we want, I want to change that a little bit here. <laughs> so, but we can repurpose the juice of what's coming in the email. Kelly, did you do that intentionally? Was that really well planned out where you were like, mm, I'm going to repurpose some of our content and throw it in here and then proceed to talk about repurposing content? If you plan that, that was very good. I'm very impressed. I know. But to Kelly's point, one of the things you do want to do is repurpose your content because if you're sending an email, you need to definitely think about what are you actually going to send and is it a value? So one of the things we would ask you to think about is what are you already doing that you can use to put it into an email? So earlier on, we mentioned our blog digests. That's where we take some of our blog posts that we've created that is content very specific for each of our industries and roles that we serve and put that into an email and provide some personal touch, some personal insight, and then a description of how this blog post is going to help them and then send that out. It's a really easy way to save yourself a lot of time when building out new content for email campaigns. When it comes to repurposing some of your campaigns, I get to use this a lot because I get new people coming into the role. So it's new people receiving my campaign. So it's not that I have to repurpose anything really necessarily for the, the new clientele that are coming in. I get to use the same stuff, um, which makes it easy for me. Also, as kind of like a training person of one on our team, like I'm the only person that does training at our company, having these email campaigns makes it seem like I have more people helping me out because when I can send these out, it seems like there's more people that are, you know, addressing these needs and getting things out like that. So even if you are a team of one, the email campaigns make it seem like you actually have people behind you backing you up with more help and things. It's like the peacock strategy. It's like become bigger, look bigger than you actually are, even though you might be a team of one. I remember in the beginning of doing our blog digest, we had no content. Like we were like, ooh, what are we going to send? We used to use like other people's blog posts and pull out weird like snippets from it. And then we would limb them. So like less is more. And eventually they became something where I didn't even know what they were anymore. This was back in the other the other days, Charlotte. The other days. I remember the other days. The yeah, other days. Unspeakable days. Unspeakable days where we did very different things and I didn't know what I was doing. So that was when I first joined the team. But now we have so much blog content that we have I don't know, emails built out for the next six months that we're able to send. So once you do beef up your content, I'd probably focus there and then you can start just repurposing it and using it again and again. I was going to say another idea is really looking at, depending what channels you're focused on, is focusing on social media. Do you have content on your social media platforms that has performed really well? And then how can you turn that into content for an email? Do you have stats that have performed really well? Do you have specific stories that have um, garnered a lot of interest? And going, going ahead and taking that and converting it into an email or an email campaign can be a really good way to repurpose your content and not have to write something from scratch. And maybe if you're just looking to make connections with an audience and find out what people are interested in, it is okay to do guest posts. Like we still do have guest blog posts and things like that in the emails that we're sending to our prospects and our clients. So maybe an idea for someone who doesn't have their own content yet, but is looking to understand what their audience is interested in, you could do like a I don't know, like a blog digest, but all of like guest articles. Like these were three articles I read this week that I don't know, gained my interest or I was interested in or the same thing with social media posts. So you can do guest guest items if you're looking to like get some data on what your target audience wants. That's such a good point, Katie. You can also, as long as you're taking either guest posts or something and then translating it to your audience. You just have to make sure they understand how it's relevant to them or how they can use what you're 
giving them to make themselves or their profession or whatever better. Charlotte and I are doing that right now with a conference we're putting on. We're taking a book that we read and we learned about bright spots from the book Switch. And we're now using that as one of the biggest bases for our content for the event. And it's hard. Like, I think we've had so many meetings, but it's also kind of rewarding to go back through it, figure out what you learned, and then figure out how others can apply it to themselves and make themselves better. So, Yeah, I agree. It's definitely been rewarding. It is challenging because you definitely have to put a lot of thought and energy into it. But another way to do it too is along the lines of it doesn't have to be a book. It could be YouTube videos or things that you've seen somebody speak about or something that you've already spoken about. It could be a speaking session that you've done or a webinar that you've done and taking the content from that and saying, you know what, what are the highlights here and how can I incorporate that into an email strategy or email campaign? Also, I just want to plug this really cool new thing I learned about. It's called video tickle, but it looks like, <laughs> okay, I think of testicle every time I say it and I just need to say it out loud because it's like V-I-D-E-O-T-I-C-L-E, like vi video Tickle? You know, you know. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. I know. It's not a great name. Video tickle. It does do cool things. It's basically transcription, but it just takes your video, a YouTube video, you plug in the link and it pulls freeze frames from the video. So if you already have video content like a webinar or a speaking session and it transcribes what you're saying into chunks underneath each of the freeze frames so you can just pull that out and create your own blog content from what you've already said and it honestly seemed to maybe do a better job than Descript because guys I was reading our Descript from the last episode and there were some parts that were making me laugh out loud I could not handle them I was going to screenshot and send them to you because I didn't even know what it was saying and I just did one with the video <laughs> I can't say it I don't know anyways <laughs> Leave it to Sarah to find another company that can transcribe things to also plug onto this podcast. Yeah, what is it? Three that we've talked about now? Um, favorite. Well, can so I use the Descript transcription. I said, can you say video tickle three times fast? No. Video tickle, video tickle, video tickle. It's like a video saying video tickle. Video tickle, like. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> So I was going to chime in and say that I used the Descript transcript last time and I used it on our headliner videos because I was learning that over half of people listen to videos on mute. So you really need to have those transcripts showing the letters too. And so I was using it and I had to edit every single one because it was completely wrong. And it was like, do I not enunciate enough? Because clearly it does not show that I said the right word. I don't know. Don't they? Doesn't it translate sommeliers to smelly A's? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could remember some of the other really funny ones. There were some really, really funny ones. I'll find them. We should do a whole drunken marketing episode where we read our transcripts and what it sounds like via Descript. So to be fair, Descript is like a bot that does it and it does it really fast and we pay like $12 a month versus if you have like rev.com do it it's a real person you can pay a real person to do it but they also cost like as much as we're paying for a year of Descript so um, I love the drunken marketing idea where it's almost like where you put in your own like adjectives and nouns and like you have to read the story what are those called <laughs> like mad living yes. marketing um, mad -libs. we need that mad libs are the best well, on that note, I'm probably going to let us jump into point number five before we get too carried away. And our last and final step to kicking off your email campaign is really be patient and flex and remain flexible because it is going to take time. Like you have probably seen, we've made a few mistakes along the way. We've learned a few things. We've learned a few things the hard way. And you may not have the engagement that you want right off the bat. And that's okay. But because one of our core values is be the tortoise, go slow and steady, and definitely do things the right way. Because if you do things the wrong way, you're going to waste more time and you're going to go back fixing things. And it's going to be painful and it's going to be really annoying and you just don't want to do it. I was laughing in the outline. It says, be patient, young grasshopper. And I was like, yes, I'm stealing this for a social later. <laughs> I'm sorry I say that. 
I deleted it because I was like, this is stupid. No one wants to read that. <laughs> I loved it. I thought that it was like be patient something else, but then I was Googling it and be patient young grasshopper is a thing. So just putting it out there. But then I said be the tortoise and I thought there were too many grasshoppers and tortoises and I was like, no one's going to even know what we're talking about anymore. Yeah, this whole episode about like bugs or something. <laughs> but anyways. The next point under being patient is regardless of your engagement, create a spreadsheet to start tracking your metrics from the beginning. We didn't do this, but once we hired our second email marketer freelancer, she helped us do this. And it's just a very simple Google Doc where we track our number of emails sent, delivered, our number of opens, our click-through rate, and our unsubscribes. And we're able to compare ourselves over time. So we do this monthly, quarterly, and yearly to see how we're progressing. And then we set new goals based on that metric. So it was hard in the beginning because you didn't have any metrics. But now that we're like a couple of years in, we're able to compare ourselves year over year and see how we're growing and doing so that we can try to one up it every time. And a lot of those other, what's it called? The accounts like MailChimp and stuff actually do pull these things for you because I was in there the other day and I was creating some design for a client and they have all these different stats. So it is probably available or at least maybe hire someone like Sarah was saying to pull that data because data is super important. And if you listen to our previous episode, we're all about that data as Kelly. <laughs> Kelly knew it was coming. I saw her face. She got so excited. I was hoping you were going to sing a little bit more. Uh, I started I laughing it. and I had to stop. <laughs> so you can continue if you would like. Isn't that supposed to be your play on Megan Trainer all about that bass? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out the last little bit, though, to make it, like, the perfect saying. So I'm still working on that one. Just in case, wanted to point that out since we might not be the best singers of the <laughs> land. <laughs> How dare you know, not know what we're singing, Katie? <laughs> How dare you say we're not good singers? <laughs> the best singers of the land. All the land. Like, you're like your little fairy tale community, whatever. <laughs> no, I was going to say real quickly, like Pardot does provide us that data. It's just we pull it out and track it. So we have like a tab for each month. So like June, July, August, and we have it for each year so that we can go back and compare the data. And then we compile it for each quarter and then each six months and then each year so that we can go back and look at the data from the previous year. Otherwise, you have to pull a lot of separate reports, at least the way our email marketing system set up. Others might be different. But. So it's all in one place. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the idea. And all of that information will help you make the decision of whether or not you need to pivot your content. If you make it all the way through a full campaign and you've only had a few people engage, then maybe you need to consider pivoting your content, pivoting your target audience, things like that. A quick story. Once upon a time, I don't know, five years ago, when we first started doing email marketing in a new, a new market, I went through and found, I don't know, hundreds of like CFOs to contact and built this email campaign and whatever. Tried really, really hard. I don't know, maybe two people engaged with it. It may have been zero. I honestly don't even remember. But don't get discouraged. Like, keep going. You will find your white knight, as Charlotte had said. So just be willing to pivot. If you aren't seeing progression, then try something new. Well, and one of the things, too, that we'll probably talk about on a later episode, but something I just want to touch on real quick is it helps you set your goals, like Sarah said. But it also, but one of the key goals that we've had is focusing on these metrics helps you grow your list. Because at the end of the day, you want to be sending to more people who fall within your qualified um, criteria. You don't want to spam everybody, but really focusing on a good quality content process or strategy will help you grow that list and get your emails in front of more people. And this helps you kind of track that and keep that on, keep that top of mind. And you don't have to keep buying new lists, which sometimes happens in the marketing world. You Sometimes you pay to attend or host at a conference, and then you get a list, or you have to pay for a list separately. That gets to be expensive, and sometimes it's not even within your um, target market. So it's really important to make sure that you keep that list and don't kind of get these people unsubscribing. Well, I think there's 
two there's something there's two things I want to differentiate there is one thing if you sponsor an event and you get lists of the attendees make sure that you review that list and say okay who is qualified and who isn't based on your criteria and number two is if you are just out there randomly buying lists from some of these list companies that exist do not do that that is the worst thing you can do as Sarah is showing right now with her fingers the little tisk tisk mark like don't do it you're not going to get quality contacts. You're going to spam people. Your reputation in the email world is going to go down. You'll get put in the in the spam folders and you're just not going it's not going to be effective. So at the end of the day, save yourself the money. Actually find people who want to engage with your content and who your content is relevant for and take that approach instead. Earlier in the episode, Paige was talking about testing things. So the important part is to pay attention to what people do engage with and figure out how to do more of that. So for instance, do your emails work better when you have more imagery or less? What subject lines seem to be getting you the highest open rates? Is it a question or is it a statement? Are you adding personalization? People love to hear their own name. You can do this in subject lines or throughout the email. Is what call to actions are working best for you and make sure that you change the color of your call to action so it stands out. Typically the email best practice is to use a complimentary color, although you should stay within your branding guidelines because I know Paige dinged our email marketer for this recently where she was using orange and we were like, that's not one of our branding colors. So you do want to stay within your branding guidelines on that. She also thought- I, I didn't that. know that, that you should use complimentary colors in that situation. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's what she said, which would mean like opposites on the color wheel, right? If you didn't go to art school and you don't know what complementary colors are, it's like purple and yellow, blue and orange, red and green. Granted, you don't need to use the basic primary colors of those because that's real fugly and very basic. <laughs> I don't like any of those colors together. I think her point Agreed. is maybe make your button, like your call to action button stand out because you don't want it to blend in with the rest of the email so people don't know where to click or what to do. That would be a shame since you should have one action that you want someone to do when they come out or are done reading your email. Oh, sorry. Can I call it one thing I dislike when I see it in emails? I dislike when people don't have a button, mm -hmm. but they have a link that is hyperlinked clearly, text that is hyperlinked, and it's made to be bigger than the rest of the copy. And they have like those little like arrows pointing to it. I have an example of that from something that I actually really have appreciated. That campaign I mentioned earlier, that challenge that I joined may have used that in their emails. And I was like, I really dislike that. And I don't like, like, it looks awful to me, but at least I did know where to click, but it's still annoying. Typically we hyperlink text not bigger than the rest of the email, but we also do a button because a button, unless you like hard code it in the email, a button, if, if you're doing an image as a button, it won't show up automatically when the emails, unless someone downloads the images. So you want to make sure they know what they're clicking on. Otherwise, they probably could report you as spam or whatnot. What do we, what do we use to make buttons? Isn't it called like the buttonfactory.com or something like that? That was in the olden days. Yeah, but yeah. I, was gonna say, I think we're past the button factory. I haven't made the button in a long time. I think it was a duh button factory. I'm pretty yeah, sure it was, it was a <laughs> duh button factory. That was pre-page, I think, or I don't know. Katie's been on maternity leave far too long. She needs to come back now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was right when years. I started. <laughs> so essentially, you don't want to make sure your entire email is monotone. You want to have different color values so that it kind of stands out and so it's not just an entire shade of blue because that will kind of make it a little bland and you can't differentiate. Something that one of my freelance gigs was trying is having multiple buttons and like having them in different places to see how far people would scroll before they would click. So they actually put a button right above the first image and then they put it at the very bottom. And then they also hyperlinked the same in the middle copy. And they were testing to see which things people would click on. Go figure, they clicked on the, the first thing that you have to scroll the least for. But it was still an interesting test just for them to see what people were interested in, how long they would pay attention, that kind of thing. So it's something to test and you can do those A-B tests or you can just do these small um, changes and see what works for you guys, so. I think people spend between eight and 11 seconds reading an email. 
I think that's pretty generous. I definitely don't spend eight to 11 seconds reading my, I don't know, sales emails like from Nordstrom or whatever. Sometimes I don't even open it. I just look at the first little header and I'm like, eh, done. Oh, so, yeah. That's <laughs> you guys caught me. <laughs> well, you guys have caught me a few times with work emails where you're like, Paige, I sent you an email and I was like, I don't have it. And I was like, ooh, they're in my deleted folder. Whoopsie. <laughs> it just didn't seem relevant at the time. So I deleted it. So one of my favorite like metrics or reporting to look at in Parda is the skimmed versus read. I don't, I don't know exactly how it determines it. I don't know if it's the amount of time someone spends or if they actually click or scroll to the bottom. I'm not sure how, how much it can tell, but it is interesting to see how many people just skim an email. And if it's quickly declared something they're not interested in, they will just delete it like Paige does. She even deletes her own team emails. So there you <laughs> go. <laughs> we need better subject lines for Paige, apparently. So you have your two different types of people. You have Paige who deletes every email and you have Sarah who has never deleted an email in her entire life. I do. Guys, my computer storage is getting really full and I'm expecting IT to reach out soon because I have like seven years of content on it and they're going to be like, you have to delete something. And I'm like, I can't, I don't know what I can delete. Sorry. I think I'm in the middle because I, I don't delete everything, but I don't save everything. But I was in a meeting yesterday with a person presenting their screen their inbox, I'm not kidding, you guys had like 13,000 emails in it. And I was like, I can't even watch this. I have anxiety just looking at your inbox. It's, I can't, this is too much for me. Sarah has more than that. Sarah, how many emails does it say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, but like when it says unread ones, like, and then it has boxes of like all the other ones. I'm like, no, that's too much for me. Oh, it says 13,000 unread. Yeah, like when you're looking at your Outlook and if it would says like one or two or three, how many are like new emails? Ooh. It was like 13,000. I was like, mm, no, 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 I can't, I can't deal with that. Like same with my phone. If there's like a, you know, a pop up or anything like that. No, it's, I'm too OCD and my anxiety is too much for that. I wonder how many I'll have when I get back from maternity leave. Okay, guys, I only have like. <laughs> What is that noise? I was going to say I have 66,978 in all my inboxes. So that includes Gmail and my company account. Why? I don't know. I've oh, wait. Emails? No, they're not like all unread. Well, some of them are. But they're like spammed and whatever. Like at a certain point, I just stopped going through my Gmail ones because there was too much spam and it just like wasn't even worth it anymore. I tried to unsubscribe and okay. just, I couldn't. So but that's both of them combined. That's like that's not. Both of them combined. But I only have I, 10 unread in my work email. So I don't think that's that bad. But I think that that brings us back to our point number five of being patient, being flexible, of making sure that you are creating the right content so that one, you don't end up deleted by page, or two, just sitting in one of Sarah's inboxes with 66,000 something emails or whatnot. So just want to make sure that you're somewhere in between there and that you're hitting the right audience and being flexible of making changes if you do end up in either of their two situations. So we've been talking for quite a while, so we should probably wrap up so that people at least have some sort of reasonably length podcast to listen to. So we just want to quickly review the five key steps to an effective email marketing strategy, at least the ones that we have found through our roller coaster journey. The first one is identifying your target audience and making sure you segment your list by role, industry, et cetera, and just pick one specific audience to target email campaigns to get started. Number two is plan the logistics. Who is going to be managing each element? And if is it you? Do you work on a team where those will be distributed amongst your team? This includes things like copywriting, design, and list management. And you can hire a freelancer who specializes in one of more of these elements to help save time if you don't have the bandwidth to do all of these things. Number three is to decide on your cadence. How often do you want to send emails? You need to outline your workflow. And one key tip is if you don't have a call to action or your email isn't communicating something important, you might want to think twice about sending it. You don't want to turn people off before you actually get them 
in the flow. Number four, repurpose content that you already have from either a high performing blog post, some social media posts or other creative channels. And number five, be patient young grasshopper and be willing to adapt until you find your rhythm. So one last thing before we go, we just want to add a real quick plug here because our email marketing strategy probably wouldn't be possible without using Upwork. So email marketing, as we know, is no walk in the park and it's okay to get help if you simply do not have the time or the desire to become a professional copywriter or designer. So we've learned that you can save a lot of time and many, many headaches by just freelancing out parts of the email marketing process that you might not be an, up, an expert at. So Upwork has continuously been our best friend when it comes to finding reliable freelancers. Remember to hire slowly and fire fast if somebody isn't working out. More to come on Drunken Marketing about that. So we just want to thank you for listening. If you're wondering how you can support the show, be sure to leave us a review. You can share it with your friends, family, enemies, or whoever else you think would like the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. We're always looking for new listeners to add to our wolf pack. Oh! Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. For show notes, links, templates, and other resources, visit our Instagram page at Wine and Whiteboards podcast. And while you're there, follow us to get more hacks and occasional wine themed humor. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you would take a minute to leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe so you can continue listening to our marketing tips and design tips. Cheers! Cheers.